Hey there. Thank you for listening to this episode of Bandwidth Coast to Coast. For this episode, we're going to follow one person's adventure around multiple coasts. Over whole continents, actually. Recently, I've been thinking a lot about Sebastian Younger's book, Tribe. More specifically, a passage in the beginning where he talks about Ben Franklin and his concern that settlers along the edges of tribal Indian land would be tempted to go run off with them. Apparently, those who got the taste of tribal life frequently would want to stay with them or would go run off along with them. Same thing was even true for colonial settlers who were violently kidnapped by natives, like fabled Cynthia Ann Parker. There's something deeply satisfying for sapiens to be banded together with their belongings and one with the elements. We feel safe and comfortable in our homes with climate control and beautiful windows to see what lies beyond its foundation. The reality, though, is that even behind our walls, we're intimately woven with that outside world. Perhaps that's why many sapiens, who get a taste of having a thinner and thinner veil between them and the elements, tend to get pulled back into its orbit. In the case of colonists and the indigenous people, they had at least direct contact with people living in a nomadic way. My guess, though, there was nothing other than the pull of something more on a journey that got him out into the open road and off with it, with nothing more than what he could fit in or on his jeep. Dan Grek has gone fully up and down the length of North America and completely around the whole continent of Africa. He's a delightfully deep and philosophical person who one day, when thoughts crossed into action, decided to go on a journey and has since turned it into a worldwide adventure. The number of stories he has about people, incredibly complex situational problem solving, and the beauty of our planet is just immense. People who have lived like him with these type of grand epic experiences that take place over so much time are in many ways living more lives than one. Right now, he's currently in his home continent of Australia and planning his next adventure around yet another continent. You can find, follow, and support him on theroadchoseme.com. My conversation with him gets very philosophical very quickly. Dan was held up in a hotel in quarantine when we talked, and as I watched the sun set outside my window, the time flew right by. We talk about how Dan got started on his adventures, some stories of his time in Africa, where the most memorable parts of his time have been, and some deep philosophical dives about life and living along the way. Thank you again for tapping into the pod. I do hope you enjoy the chat. Real quick before the episode starts, if you'd like to listen to us on your streaming platform of choice, donate to the show, sign up for our mailing list, visit us at bandwidthpodcast.com. And of course, if you like what you hear, follow, comment, or subscribe to the pod from wherever you're listening. Enjoy. Oh, that's new. Uh, Well, thank you, Dan, for taking the time. Um, I like to ask people a a question the first time that they're on. So I want to ask it to you, which maybe your answer will be something about what we're going to be talking about which is, uh, what do you like to do that makes you happy? Oh, well, I mean, I'm locked in a hotel room right now, JR. So I'm just going to say I like being outside. So I love hiking. I love camping. I love just watching the sunrise, you know, walking on the green grass. Pretty much being outside makes me a happy person. I like that. Yeah, I can resonate with that. Um, 
what about sunrises in particular do you like uh i always feel excited that it's like the beginning of something new that it's like oh here we go you know new new things are going to happen now it all it all begins now and it's like everything's been kind of wiped away and it's always like really cool you know you kind of have that tingling on your skin yeah yeah just an exciting kind of like new beginning every day yeah i like that um I, like a, a few people in my life know that I have a certain pension for 4 a.m. And I just say that because like some people that like, you know, I used to work with well, my, one friend, my one friend, Max, like he stays up sometimes like all night long. So sometimes like it'd be like, dude, it's like 4 a.m. Like, what are you doing? Um, and the, <laughs> the reason that it is that I like 4 a.m. so much because it's the, like the time of day. That's the exact opposite of what you're saying. You know, like instead of it being like everything comes alive because sunrise, like animals start coming alive. You start hearing bird songs. Like everything is kind of feeding this natural pension of like idea of what you're saying. Like it's the start of something, right? Everything's yeah. becoming alive and moving where 4am is like dead. And there's like nothing but silence and just complete deadness in the air. You know, like n- nothing moves around at 4am really. And the things that do are yeah, kind of creepy yeah, can... and scary. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I could see how that'd be really beautiful. Really just like completely clean slate, like not starting, just like ending everything is finished. Yeah. It's like the transition, right? The transition yeah. where like the nocturnal animals are starting to get wound down and the daytime animals yeah. are starting to like be like their last little bit before they wake up. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I, I can't say I often get up at 4am, but I, I see what you mean. <laughs> I used to stay up till 4am. I used to go, th- I went through this phase where I was like, um, uh, they, they called it like, there's a, several names for it, but like Leonardo da Vinci is the one that's always like made it famous where that you sleep in certain intervals. So like you sleep like less yeah. and less time, but you just like muscle memory train your body to like be okay with like taking a nap every like four hours or something. And then eventually gets used to it. And as long as you're still doing it, supposedly it's not terrible for you, but I would do things <laughs> like that. <laughs> and yeah. then I would just end up timing it. So I'd be up at 4am or just stay up all night until 4am. I used to be much more reckless with my sleep hygiene. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I've always been a sleeper. So I'm pretty solid, like eight hours a night. I really like it. Make, you know, it makes me have a better day basically if I get a solid sleep. Oh, totally. Um, which would make sense, especially if you're driving for long distances across treacherous territory, um, which is a lot of the reason that I'm actually talking to you. Um, so just briefly describe what you've been doing for the, and and how long you've been doing it, I guess. Yeah, JR, uh, about 12 years ago now, I was working as an engineer sitting at a desk every day and I realized it wasn't what I wanted to do with my life. It wasn't making me happy. Um, so I started saving money furiously, cut out all unnecessary spending, uh, and I quit my job and I drove all the way to the top of Alaska in my little Jeep, like with a camp stove and a tent and a box of clothes and nothing else. And then I turned around and I drove all the way to the bottom of Argentina. So I drove through all of Central America and South America uh, and just, you know, had adventures as I went. So I like poked lava with a stick and I kayaked with icebergs and I saw monkeys swinging through the trees and, you know, visited Mayan ruins and hiked in the uh, Andes and, you know, just these amazing adventures and it, I really got addicted to it and it changed my life. So I came back home, saved up a ton more money, had to go back to work. And then I quit that job again. And then I spent three years driving all the way around Africa. So kind of same story. I just had this vehicle that was my house with all my kitchen and fridge and like, you know, sleeping setup and everything. 
and then went and had adventures all the way around Africa and it blew my mind. It was a thousand times more adventure than I even dreamed would be possible on planet Earth. Oh, I bet. Yeah, you saw like two giant spanses of the territory of like the actual like, you know, terrain, the actual terrain of the earth, actually, now that I think about it, because the rest of it would be water. Um, yeah, when I look on a world map now, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, like <laughs> I've seen some stuff. Like It's like getting there in terms of like, I could conceivably see like the majority of it if I like keep my, you know, keep that as my focus and keep working hard and yeah. Yeah, and like a uh, and like a conqueror's route in a way, like an ancient map kind of thing. The way, because I've seen some of the maps of the ways that you went, and it's I'm assuming you travel mostly around like major waterways and things like that, and also yeah. like mountains. Yeah, that's right. And I really I do a lot of detouring, a lot of zigzagging, just to like find interesting stuff. You know, I, I look on a map and it's like there's a national park I've never really heard about it. And I'm I'm going to go have a look just because it's there, just because I can. That's great. So how much do you plan beforehand? Uh, not as much as everyone assumes. <laughs> I probably, about a month before I'm going to cross into any given country, I start sort of reading The Lonely Planet. I look at my paper maps. I start sort of marking some highlights on the maps and things that I'd like to see. And then I just sort of very vaguely start planning, planning some sort of route that's going to get me to see most or all of them you know, oh, there's a road from here to here and then I can cut down on this road and then I can head over there and, you know, oh, I read that the capital city's beautiful. I should check that out. And I kind of make it up as I go along realistically. Um, and I always like to take advice from locals as well. So usually once I get into a country, I meet someone who's like, ah, oh, I'll tell you all the good stuff. And then that just completely turns my plan upside down. And I'm like, perfect. That's exactly what I want. That's great. That's great. So, so wait, where's home originally when you started in uh, going to Alaska? Home originally a long time ago is Australia, uh, but I moved to Canada about 18 years ago. And so I've, I've been living in Canada for a long time now. Okay. So you have a home base outside of the travels? Uh, not, not technically, no. I don't own a house or have a storage locker or anything like that. No, I, when, when I hit the road, I basically sell everything whatever doesn't fit in my vehicle isn't worth owning. And then I hit the road and I'm like not paying rent or anything like that. Yeah. It's okay. That's very, I like how you like transition between a uh, normal modern life and like something of like a horse raider tribesman when you're starting to go on these uh, type of things where it's like, if I can't fit in my car, I can't go. Yeah. I really enjoy JR the like uh, the, the juxtaposition between the two different lives, you know, and, when we live, you know, Canada, Australia, the US, life's pretty cushy and pretty easy. You know, we've got air conditioning, we've got couches and Netflix and like, I mean, you got to work every single day, but life in general isn't like difficult or arduous. You know, you don't have to deal with dirt and mosquitoes and all those kinds of things if you don't want to. Um, and then, so I really, I like that. It's good for recharging my batteries. But then I really like when I turn my back on that and walk away and be like, I'm going to intentionally go and make life really difficult and see what I think and see for how long I enjoy it and which parts of it are really nice and which parts of it I could do without. I like that. Um, I have a question that I'm really excited I get to ask you um, because you have such a great juxtaposition between these two worlds of like, like something I think a lot about is like how our life nowadays is so, I don't want to say easy because I think it's actually kind of, it's hard, but it's hard in a different way than physically hard, but it's very comfortable. 
like everything around us and all these like complicated manufacturing and logistic and science things that get us everything we have make our life very comfortable. So um, I like that you get to oscillate between those two different worlds to such a staggering degree as being completely cut off and remote at times off grid really. Right. Um, so I wonder how much you've, if, have you noticed a difference in your level of relative happiness, like correlate in some type of ratio between your comfort? Like when you're in situations where you're less comfortable because you have mosquitoes and it's hot and you can't seem to get to sleep. Do you tend to find yourself being more happy in those remote, less comfortable situations than when you're back in the four walls of Western world? I think it's a, it's a tricky correlation and it's not necessarily based on comfort. For me, it's probably based more on exhaustion or like exhaustion has a lot to do with it. So the more exhausted I am, the less able I am to tolerate right. mosquitoes and dust and humidity and all of that stuff. But my happiness, I think, increases when life is more challenging. So, for example, if I'm out like on a big 10-day canoe trip or something, you know, and you, you physically have to paddle the canoe for 10 hours a day and then set up your tent and like cook your food over the fire and like that's all difficult and hard, but I really enjoy it. I really revel in that versus right now I've been stuck in this hotel room for 12 days life couldn't actually be any easier you know food gets delivered to me i literally only have to get out of bed if i want to like and so yeah when when life is too easy i find it there's no challenge there's no reason to sort of exist or persevere it just is everything's on autopilot i'm like oh i could just flip on the autopilot switch and 10 years would go by and i wouldn't even really notice there'd be no highs or lows it'd just be like smooth sailing yeah super easy yeah. yeah, sometimes I describe, I describe like normal life living in the first world is is a bit like just coasting on a roller coaster, like on the flat section. Every day is like a five out of ten. Like nothing really bad's going to happen, and nothing really great's going to happen. And if you, you can just comfortably coast along at a five out of ten for a very long time, and it's easy. Versus when you decide to go traveling or when you decide to go on a big canoe trip, it's much more being in the ups and downs of the roller coaster. You'll have moments that are 10 out of 10 where you're like, oh my God, I just saw like a shooting star or the Northern Lights or whatever. It's some amazing experience with your friends. But then the very next moment you might flip the canoe and then suddenly you have a zero out of 10 because you're cold and wet and scared and everything's like not working and you can't light the fire. And, and so I think what it is, is if your average can stay above the five, if more days than not, you can be having, you know, seven, eight, nines, then, then you're doing a good thing and you want to try and keep going. But if you get to a point where you're so tired or you're so worried or everything's not working well and you're having a whole bunch of days that are like twos and threes, you say, I'm done with this. I love that analogy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cite you going forward on that because that is great. <laughs> uh, life in the industrialized world maybe is, is, is like a five out, of, a five out of 10. I like that. Like, because it is, it's just, I'm, I'm moving forward. It's a perpetual motion and it just, everything that you want is kind of there and it kind of, it, yep, yep. it, and it's not bad in any way. There's nothing like horrible, but it's also nothing outrageously good either. You know, you, you even go out for sushi and you're like, oh, yeah, that was good. Like you could have gone out and had steak or you could have like, there's so many options and all of them are just perfectly adequate and acceptable. 
Right. So you just end up going with whatever gets you most excited. And then you kind of ride that high of excitement, but it never gets too high. But then the, you know, the impending, you know, resolve to it never really gets too high either. You know, occasionally something gets you really excited, but then it kind of resolves in a certain way because of everything else around you and tasks and obligations. Um, exactly right. Exactly right. So it all just sort of averages out of this like smooth sailing. Right. And I would even like, I always throw social media in there because I, th- I think a lot about it, but like even that, like it adds to this whole reward cycle of just kind of everything evening out, right? Like something, you might see something that really gets you excited or something that gets you kind of um, laugh or something like that, but then it automatically just kind of resolves in a little bit of a faster pace, even though the height of it may have been really high because, you know, it, it our, our whole system. And, and also to say th- about the sushi is we're, we're not having much act in getting the sushi to us. Right. So like the actual act of even fishing it, making the rice, cooking the rice, putting it together, it's just there for us again, which I also think a lot about like the chain of, you know, systems that it takes to get all of that to you, you know, and not, and not them not being sustainable, which really just means they're scraping more and more and more off as we go, uh, which goes all to your point of ups and downs. Like some moments are low, but other moments you're going to be able to you know, eat the sushi that you've prepared and have it be much more of a higher high. I think about that a lot as well, JR, and about how in our industrialized world, there isn't much that you can do to really get like deep satisfaction. So like you said, you don't get to go and catch your own fish and then prepare it. And then like, when you stand back and you say, I made that sushi, like that's, that's a different kind of satisfaction than just handing over money and someone just puts it in front of you. And you're like, okay, yeah, it tasted good, but I don't know anything about how it came to be or like I didn't do it myself. Yeah, and so I think my personality is I, I just love to do things for myself and I love to try and be involved in every step. And I think it's really the same with happiness as well. The, the analogy I always use there is like, it's really easy to pay $150 and go to Disneyland for the day and you're probably going to have a pretty good day. You just pay for entertainment, you pay for enjoyment and it'll work. But I always find it a bit more interesting to say, like, what if I just go for a walk in the park and, like, look at the trees and maybe throw the Frisbee and read a book in the shade and, like, don't pay any money whatsoever? Can I still have enjoyment? Can I still find things that, are, you know, make me happy but without just paying for it? Because I feel like paying for it somehow cheapens it or it takes away some of the, like, I created this for myself. I'm like, oh, someone was just paid to do that for me. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, I, definitely. I think, I think a lot about that is, is happiness cheaper when you just pay for it. And by cheaper, I mean like less, less kind of uh, deep satisfaction. It's a, it's yeah. a different, it's surface level happiness instead of some sort of like deeper happiness. Yeah. It, it cheapens it right. By quantifying it, it almost, it cheapens what the actual reward is. And, and it sort of feels silly to know that it's like a Saturday morning, you can say, oh, we'll just pay to go to Disneyland. It'll be fine. It'll be good. It'll work. We'll be happy. It's almost cheating that you know that you'll be happy before you are happy. Because I think happiness is best when it's a bit spontaneous. It is that moment where like you're just sitting in the park and like a bald eagle flies over you. You're like, wow, I haven't seen a bald eagle in a year. That was incredible. Like I was not expecting that. But if you go to Disneyland, you're kind of expecting everything that's going to happen. You basically know it before you even get there. So, yeah, it's, it's the unexpected versus the expected. It's the paying for it. It's kind of a whole bunch of things, I think. Oh, definitely. Definitely multidimensional. Um, I think a lot about definitions. 
And I, I was thinking about delight recently. And I feel like you can't have delight without surprise. So if you uh-huh. know that you're going to have, be happy, it's not, it's sure you could be happy, but were, was it a delightful experience? Right. Cause like, I think even in our like brain, when we think of that word, it's a different type of, it's a different spectrum of happiness, right? Like, I don't want to say it's a higher order of happiness, but it's different, right? It's unexpected. Like it's, you, you, you almost lose control to the happiness when that kind of moment happens. 100%. Yeah. That's a yeah. really good way to say it. And it's funny. You reminded me of this book that I read. I must've been about 10 years old. It's called the search for delicious. And way back in the day, some guy's writing a dictionary. And so he's trying to define all these words and he has no problem until he gets to the word delicious because everybody has a different, different definition. You know, some people say it's like fresh fish. Some people say it's the warm something on your face or, or uh, you know, a cheesecake or like, and then so it goes into the sort of the, not the philosophy, but sort of the deeper understanding of like, how do you define delicious and then things like, yeah, delight or happiness kind of come into play as well. Yeah. Those type of, it's, it's interesting. Those type of uh, experiential words tend to be the hardest ones to express or nail down. Mm-hmm. And it is interesting that there are different words, like delight is a different word than happiness is a different word than enjoyment. So they, they are different for a reason. So it's fun to think about what those reasons are. Yeah. yeah or like enjoyable. When is enjoyable ever in like a truly uh, anything other than sarcastic, you know, environment? Like I actually said something was enjoyable the other day to my wife and she was like, oh, are you being serious? And I was like, oh yeah, no, actually, no, it was, I had a great time. No, it was good. But like the connotation that we kind of associate with it is different, but we tend to only ever lump things into just large buckets. Right. Almost like amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I I think it's shorthand to survive. Right. Yeah. And the one that always gets me on a similar vein is when you ask people how they're doing and they say, not bad. (laughs) They're rating their happiness on a scale of bad. (laughs) Like that always, that always makes me a bit surprised that I'm like, wow, you, you, you're like the best thing you can come up with is not bad. (laughs) That's really great. I say not bad all the time. And that's totally true. Yeah, like I, I think I, I forced myself to have a less pessimistic than my default setting of the world. So uh, that's that, that's a really great uh, point. Um, words matter too, you know what I mean? Especially those ones that are like knee jerk. They tend to they tend to mean yeah. a lot, you know. Yeah, but but I think it does make sense too, Jr. Like if if you're on that smooth sailing roller coaster and you're a five out of ten, I mean, it's true. Things aren't bad. Like you just cruising along it's every day has been the same now for months or even years things are not bad like nothing disastrous has happened lately the roller coaster hasn't derailed so in some senses it, it makes sense to say that once that sort of monotony creeps in and and i think it really is it's that monotony that drives me or that like forces me or pushes me to be like whoa i have to make a change i like i kind of want to derail the roller coaster even if it means some bad times because if I'm lucky, it's also going to mean some good times. And that's what I'm chasing. Oh yeah. No, I love that. That's, that's great. Um, and you know, I, I don't, I wouldn't fault anybody that would want to stay just on that cruise cruise control at like you're, you're at a five out of 10, but the thing that I would posit, um, is I think we, as a like being, cause I think it's really hard for us as our mental consciousness to transcend our physical body. Right. And our physical body comes with it a lot of programming, right? Like a lot of evolutionary programming. And I think just as much as we are programmed to enjoy what you do, like roughing it 
as well as just like hard physical effort or hard mental effort is as much as we are and problem solving is as much as we're kind of programmed to want to seek, you know, comfort and seek, you know, ease, ease. But see, the thing is that we're detaching those two more and more, right? That's like what I think about, right? Like we're detaching the hard physicality and the hard mental and hard problem solving and all of that from the comfort. And it's supposed to, you're supposed to work with one to get to the other. That's how we got here. Right. But it's almost like the a phoenixing of it, right? Like we were burning ourselves up at this moment because they're so detached and we're so detached from so many things. Yeah. That's an interesting way to look at it. I've never thought of. And, and you're totally right from an evolutionary perspective, it makes perfect sense that we should seek comfort and shelter and warmth and like, when life is cruisy and like food is provided and you're not worried about being attacked by a saber toothed tiger, like that's good. That's, that's, that's a win. Like, well done. Yeah. But then I guess, I don't know when it happened. I don't know if it's just our lifetime. Like I'm kind of a millennial. So, so I don't know if it's just that we are in this like era of human, human evolution where it's like life kind of got easy. Or if it's been happening now, maybe since the sixties, you know, kind of everyone had a house, everyone had a car, like, yeah, I feel like life's been pretty easy for a while now for, for people in the industrialized world. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think we're kind of riding the exponent from, I used to think the industrial revolution, but I think if you could start, you go with like the global colonial rule of kind of uh, Columbus and that kind of post-Columbus, I think it's riding an exponent since then. So like, you know, the yeah, rise yeah. was like steady, 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 steady. And now we're, we're on the point where it's like about to go vertical. So I think and we've obviously been super lucky that we, we haven't lived through a world war or anything like that. So life obviously was extraordinarily difficult two generations ago or even one. So yeah, yeah. We're, we're kind of at this interesting point where it's like suddenly, and maybe it'll happen with like universal basic income or with robots taking all our jobs or like maybe in our lifetime, the day will come where like people don't even really have to go to work at all ever. Some people I think, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Or yeah. other people yeah. might not even be able to find jobs. Right. Yeah, which will present its own huge problems. But in terms of like, suddenly we're going to have all this time to like sit around and kind of do nothing and be like, oh, is that enjoyable? Is that actually what we want to do? Just like sit on the couch and watch Netflix literally all day, every day. Oh, see, the part that scares me is I think is you're going to be playing around in the virtual world. And I think yeah. that might be compelling. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it'd be a great way to chew up time and like ch chase enjoyment or chase like fulfillment. Yeah, or entering, you're like entering almost a different reality at that point, right? Right, like, you're, they, yeah, I mean. Because, and I guess if you do it enough of hours of the day, you're almost acknowledging that like this reality isn't really satisfying you. And so you, you're off looking for a different one. Right, yes, which I think almost is already happening. I think like virtual reality and the way that people think about it with like Tron, right? Or like the Matrix yeah. is kind of already happening in a in a more like, analog you know like in, in a more way of like the way computing kind of ramped up right like at first it was clunky right and i feel like it's already kind of existing with people who spend most of their time on social media like that is a, a reality right like their interface is slow and it's textual and it's visual and it's only you know they're they're not all their senses are being tapped in but it's consuming them in such a similar way it's almost as if it was fully immersive like vr ar kind of thing right Absolutely. Yeah. And you end up with kind of like an echo chamber or even just all of your friends and all the people in your community and, and you feel very comfortable and safe and happy. And like, 
things are expected and things make sense to you in that world that you're in. Yeah. Versus, you know, you, you unplug and you go head out and do something different. You're like, Whoa, I was not expecting that. Yeah, definitely. Um, what is it like, do you, do you look up when you go on these trips, like what the, like violence or, you know, uh, turbulence is in any given region? Like when you were in, I mean, in South America or in, in Africa. I do. Yeah. I keep my ears open. I talk to a lot of locals. I talk to the border guards. There's always a lot of military checkpoints in countries that are having trouble. Um, and so I do, I, I try to understand what the situation is. And there were a couple of countries in Africa where it was kind of like, you should go across like as fast as you can. Don't linger, you know, don't, don't camp out in the wild and think that you're going to be safe. It's, it's kind of, you know, Nigeria was one of those. The Congo was one of those. Um, but then, of course, there's countries where, like, I drove into Zambia uh, and people were just like, this country is amazing. People are super friendly. You could camp and explore, like, every remote corner and you'll just meet fantastically friendly, happy people. So, yeah, it, it varies a lot and it is worth, like, trying to talk to people and trying to understand what's going on. Oh, yeah, I bet. That's, that's smart. Were you ever in any situations that made you a little nervous? Um, I definitely have had like my spidey senses tingle a few times where I'm like, you know, this doesn't feel great or I'm, I'm not feeling very comfortable right now. But I also, I'm really careful. You know, I don't wander around in the dark. I very, very rarely drive in the dark. Um, so I, I feel like I just sort of avoid those situations. So they're very rare because I've sort of planned ahead to make sure that they don't happen. So do you have some like rules that you've been starting that you like over the time have kind of set for yourself, like not driving at night or not walking around at night? Yeah. The biggest one for sure is no driving at night. Um, and that's sort of a combination of things. The roads themselves are really dangerous with like potholes and animals and just vehicles with no lights, people walking on the roads. It just is like dangerous in terms of like a car crash. Um, but you know, it's also in the dark, everything's just more intimidating, you know? So even when the military stop you, you just feel scared and you just have this vibe of like, oh, they're going to get me just because it's dark, you know, but then you wake up in the morning and you're like, oh, actually everyone's really friendly and this country is amazing. Like, why was I scared last night? So I feel like, and I guess too, the chances of something bad happening do increase at night, you know, getting robbed at gunpoint or something I think is more likely. Um, so yeah, no driving in the dark is definitely my biggest rule on myself. Nice. Have you gotten broken down at all? I, I saw that you have a Jeep Wrangler and I was like uh, seeing how many thousands of miles, one of them was 80,000 miles in Africa. And I was, <laughs> the first thought I had was how many times did it break down? <laughs> the Jeep actually never broke down, JR. It never left us stranded. Uh, I did a lot of preventative maintenance. I did a lot of, you know, routine oil changes and tire rotations and stuff. Um but when you're that far from home too, one of the really big priorities is vehicle preservation. So, you know, you're in the middle of the Congo, there's this enormous mud pit that could be who knows how deep and there could be like logs on the bottom and like, you don't know. It's like, if I can drive around that, I'm going to drive around that. Like, it's not the time where you want to like, you know, hey, look everyone, look how big of a mud pit I drove through. You know, that's like great to do on a weekend when you're just 10 minutes from home. That's not a good idea when you're in the middle of the Congo. Yeah. So in terms of, you know, drive gently, be, be gentle to the machine. And, and they've always served me really well. Oh, that's great. How, like, so how fast do you generally drive? 
like slower? Uh, slower, yeah, much slower. Usually the road conditions wouldn't even let you get above like 30 or 40 miles an hour in most countries, even on the paved roads. And then, you know, if, if you're on a gravel road, you can get all the way down to five or two miles an hour, depending on how bad it is and, you know, what, how bad the mud is, stuff like that. Yeah, in the Congo, it took, it took about five or six days to drive 400 miles, 500 miles. And like 10 hour driving days. Wow. Was that yeah, the, the road, road conditions or just like switchbacks or? Road conditions. So at time you're basically driving on like a motorbike path through like grass taller than the Jeep and then like river crossings and bridges that were super sketchy and big mud pits. And then like at times the road's so wild and it's like a trench through the mud that you have to go through the trench, but there's like a broken down vehicle in the middle of the trench. So you have to try and like get out and help them or pull them out or do whatever you, cause, cause until they move, you can't get through. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an adventure. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah, no, it sounds great. When you were saying like about how you like left uh, Canada, went to Alaska, then drove back down. It, it definitely sounded like a movie montage for sure. Uh, like, especially quitting your job to do that. That's, that's really quite amazing. Um, God, I, I just think about how much like, different geographies and terrain and cultures that you have, that you travel when you go through that much. Um, I also thought it was funny that your Africa expedition was one day shy of a thousand. <laughs> and I, I didn't plan that at all, JR. That's not intentional. So. Yeah. So basically I had notes in my journal of every date that I crossed every border. And when I finished shipping the Jeep out of Egypt was an enormous paperwork nightmare. It took way longer than it should have. And, and so I finally, I loaded it into a shipping container I raced back to the place where I was staying and I tried to book a plane flight for that night, but I couldn't, there weren't any. So I had to book one for the next day. So then I had like 24 hours to kill. And so the next morning I got up and like had a coffee and, you know, kind of wandered the streets of Egypt to like trying to soak it in. I was like, Oh, I wonder like what date did I enter Africa? And so I looked it up and I typed it into one of those online calculator things, you know, number of days between two dates, nine, nine, nine. You know, I didn't I didn't plan that. I mean, would I have booked the plane ticket for yet another day later to get a thousand? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> that's the way it worked out. Yeah, that's funny. You must have got that question or got that observation a lot because that was the first thing I thought of. I was like, you couldn't have planned that because you probably would have went an extra day. Did you feel weird not having your Jeep after you shipped it and we had 24 hours without it? It was so strange, yeah, because even I'm I'm standing in the shipping port and it was like this big mad scramble because everything always is. And so I reversed it into the shipping container. I barely like squeezed out the driver's door and the guys are trying to like slam the door of the container shut. And so they do, they the big heavy steel doors, you know, it's got this big massive latch on it and we put a padlock on it. And then suddenly it's like, I'm just standing on the dock and there's like 10,000 shipping containers sitting around and like, where's my Jeep? It's gone. And then like they pick the shipping container up with a crane and like whip it away into the distance at maximum speed. And I was like, oh, be careful. Like, don't drop it. <laughs> And then it was like, I, yeah, I felt like a limb had been cut off because I'd been sleeping, cooking, eating in the Jeep every single day for three years. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy. Yeah, it, it, it becomes part of a part of your experience, right? Like a limb, that's a great way of putting it, right? Because it's oh, so oh, there's no doubt. And like, yeah, and it, and it developed its own personality. And like, I had conversations with the Jeep and then, and I had all these little characters too. Like I have a sloth hanging off the roll bar and a snake on the dashboard and, yeah, they were my friends. We had adventures together. 
Yeah, that's great. That's great. <laughs> yeah, I, I would imagine that. Yeah, I, I often feel like after I've had a car for a while that it's like almost personified just from like how much you've been through with it, you know, uh, especially I have like a, oh. a Subaru now and I've like gone like my, you know, my wife and I and my dog have like moved out to California, then back to California with it and like driven like, you know, all over like the Midwest with it. So like all of those type of adventures, it's just like starts becoming part of your memories and association with it. But when you're with oh, it, definitely all hours of the day, all day and night. And it's like, you're, it's, it's, it's what gets you the places, right? It's like, what means you're going to get to safety or get, you know, get a place to sleep tonight or get, get, get to the next place, you know, or food. Yeah. And it was also my shelter as well, because I had like a, a pop-up roof. So I was sleeping in the Jeep. So it was like keeping me safe from malaria and animals and, you know, everything. So it was my whole world really. Yeah. I bet. Um, oh yeah. Malaria. And that's pretty terrible. And, in some parts of Africa. So did you, when it got to be night, did you just like start a fire? And then once the fire was out, get right into the Jeep to hide from the mosquitoes or were you just like accepting and getting the mosquitoes early? Uh, pretty much at, at dawn and dusk, that's when like the malaria mosquito is active. And so you really have to cover up. You have to put on long pants, long sleeves, put bug spray, you know, like on your neck and your hands and try, you have to try your hardest not to get bitten by mosquitoes. It's kind of like a full-time job especially when it's 100 degrees Fahrenheit and 95% humidity. Like wearing long pants at 5 p.m. is not very enjoyable. No, no, I wouldn't. That's not enjoyable at all, especially at that temperature. Wow. Um, I didn't realize that those ones were only active during certain times of the day. That's pretty interesting. Um, what, what was your, I mean, do you, I mean, so much that you would be wrapping up into this question, but is there anything about like people or, uh, you know, cultures or just interactions that you've had with people that you really took away that kind of resonated with you when you're looking back on your interactions across all these different cultures and, you know, three different continents, depending on how you want to slice it. Yeah. Without a doubt, JR, when I was planning these trips and, you know, thinking about it, I kind of like saw myself as Indiana Jones or something, you know, and I've got this big four wheel drive and I'm this big adventurer and I was looking forward to like the mountains and the rivers and the lakes and, you know, the landscapes, I guess, and the adventure. And they're like, yeah, I did it, you know. But without a doubt, and beyond all of that, like that was all cool and elephants are cool and, you know, tons of lion stories and like that's all amazing. But it pales in comparison to the way that people have treated me all around the world. So I have hundreds of times where like I show up in this tiny little village right at dark and I'm kind of a bit scared, you know, but... I'm, I've got a different skin color. I'm driving this big four-wheel drive. I'm obviously a bit of a weirdo. And people in the village would just come straight out to me and say, hello, you are welcome. Welcome, welcome, come, come. And they're like, here, you, you, you camp here. Yes, yes, very good. And then they'd be like, here's my children. Here, oh, do you want some food? Here's some water. For no other reason than they are just extremely friendly, kind, welcoming people. And, and I remember a couple of times, like it actually brought tears to my eyes because it had been, you know, an exhausting day and I was kind of scared and whatever and just endless, endless people that I met along the way who would laugh and smile and joke and sing and dance and just be happy and just be kind because that's what people are around the world. It's like the very, very vast majority of people, they're just so happy and so friendly and it, it still staggers me when I think about Africa, I, I think about all the adventure more than all of that is I think about the people and I think about how incredible they are. That's really uh, heartwarming in a, in a way. Um, 
I, 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 that's amazing how the other thing I was thinking when you were describing this is, you know, it, it looks like you have money, right? Cause to a village that's remote, like your Jeep and all your supplies, like that's, that's a lot. Right. So like, it's, it's almost like a juxtaposition of what ends up happening versus what, you know, someone's expectation is from like movies or kind of our cultural zeitgeist, right. Which is, you know, they're just gonna, they're gonna rob you, but no, it's like, here's my children. Here's my wife. How can I, you know, in, include you in it? Um, I went on this like kayaking trip once for like two weeks in the Philippines and Palawan, like El Nido is where I was at in uh, the Island of Palawan. Um, and El Nido is the city. And, uh, I went on this like limestone islands with a bunch of, a bunch of friends. We went like kayaking and went camping and we kind of like Island hopped along these islands and we came back. Um, we ended up renting motorbikes one of the days. Um, like that's why I had someone in the back of my, like a dirt bike and my my other buddy rented a scooter and we just kind of went driving out into like the villages and we rolled up to this village and like ignorantly, we asked if they had like a cafe or something. And they were like, at first they just didn't understand what we were asking. And then eventually like someone that had a shop, like understood. And she was like, okay, I come in. And we were like, we didn't know what we were expecting. turned out we were like in their storeroom and this lady's uh, mom, like, you know, cooked us this meal and it was delicious. And, you know, they didn't even want any money for it. We ended up paying them for it, but they, there was no money was ever talked about or anything that was like so open armed. Um, and it really taught me a lesson about like, just how much people are willing to help others you know, if they're, if that's kind of the situation arises, like how much we're actually like more, more welcoming to each other than we seem to be at face value. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't have said it better myself, JR, where, yeah, you, you, if you're a tiny bit vulnerable or if you ask for help in any way, people will go out of their way to help you and provide you with food and shelter and even give you a ride into town or like whatever it is, you're like, of course I'll help you because we're all in this together and we'll all help each other and we'll all get through whatever challenges come along. Yeah. It's, it's an amazing thing that seems to emerge just from us meeting each other and those situations are right. I, I guess that's another part of it that I never thought of was, you know, if we, if you needed help or if you present yourself in, in a way of, you know, needing, needing help or just being soft mannered or something along those lines, like, how much more willing people would be to help you or interact with you or embrace you. That's a, that's an aspect of it. I, I hadn't thought of, but I, I think that's a really great point. Yeah. And, and getting back to our conversation from earlier too, I feel like it's a big difference between our industrialized world versus undeveloped Africa. People have to rely on each other a lot more because not everyone has their own car and their own lawnmower and their own fridge and, you know, all those kind of, trappings of life that you can just stay at home and you never even have to ask your neighbors for help versus in Africa, you're constantly working together to be like, Hey, let's go and round up all of my goats work together. And then we can slaughter one and have a big party tonight. Like you do things as a team and as a community. And so people are way more like together. And so that was, that was a really uh, classic saying, actually, when I was in the Congo, people would always say in French, they'd say on ensemble, which is the informal way of saying like, we are together. We, and, and so you help pull them out of the mud and they just come over and shake hands and be like, yep, we're together in this. And then, you know, the next day they help me and they say, yep, we're together in this. It's like, because everyone's working together to help struggle through, you know, what are really arduous conditions and there's no electricity, there's no running water, there's no government, there's no hospitals. But if we all work together, life can be good. But I think in our world, 
it's kind of more like we're all separate. We're all just doing our own thing. And like we set up our little walls and our fences and we're like, I don't really need you. I can, I can have my life without needing assistance from anyone. Sorry, great timing. Uh, I just, yeah, uh, great timing. You know, I yeah. just got my, so I'll, yeah. I'll be back in like three minutes. I'll wait right here. Thank you. Sorry, man. No, it was a great time. Sorry about that, JR. No, that's quite all right. That was a, a great place uh, to segue. Um, or, I mean, that was a great kind of point to, to have a pause on. Um, yeah, I, I, think, I think about this a lot. Okay, so like I used to travel a lot for work and I've, I've traveled to, you know, uh, I, was, I studied in Taipei for like nine months uh, in school. Oh, wow. And then, yeah, it was really dope. Uh, and then I've been to Europe and I've been a couple other places. Um, and I've been all over the United States for work. And something I've noticed is in the colder climates, like the harsher, colder places, the nicer everyone is. Like I'm from the Midwest. I live in the Midwest. Um, I used to, I used to live in Southern California and San Diego up until recently. And, uh, everyone in like the colder, the climate or the harsher, the climate, the harsher, the weather right? The harsher the outside experience that you have to deal with. Because like in the South, people are nice, right? And why are they nice? I feel like, well, there's some pretty bad storms there and the power can go out, you know? And uh, it also sometimes get like, gets like wickedly hot that can become a problem. Um, and I, I feel like there's a correlation with how nice people are, you know, with density, right? Like how dense something is, dense of a city, um, but then also weather, right? Cause it kind of forces you to realize like if you're in a storm, if you, your car goes out in the side of the road in the blizzard or some thunderstorm, like that's pretty bad. Right. And you're going to, you're going to need to figure that out, which is also why I feel like weather is something that people talk about a lot. Right. Cause it's really just concerning about our environment. Right. But if you're living in like Southern California and you, you know, you make good money and you don't have those type of things to contend with, you're like in, you're in such a, um, comfortable world, which is not to say anything other than just like matter of factly, that's what it is, right? You don't have to contend with those things. So your interactions with others, I feel like inadvertently start to creep in, in this, in this kind of sheltered off way, because all of you are like, you know, you're at your peak need, right? Your peak needs are being met in such a way that you're like, I like your analogy of your coasting, right? So why, you know, what, why do I need to worry about anyone else? Yeah, I think that's, you've absolutely hit the nail on the head of like when life is harsh and difficult, it's like we treat each other better or we, 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 I guess we go out of our way to make sure we have good relationships with those around us because we know we're going to rely on them and, and they're going to rely on us. And yeah, we all, we all have to work together. But when life is as easy as it can possibly be, you just don't need to. You can just, other people are almost like an annoyance because they like get in your way when there's traffic or they're like, you know, they make you slow down when you're at the grocery store or, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? And, and I really noticed that. I lived up in the north. I lived in the Yukon and explored all over Alaska for four years. And people up there are, are very different. And, and it takes a while to get used to because on the surface, people are quite like gruff and quite like blunt and short. And they're, they're not like surface level polite. They're not like, oh, hi, how are you today? Oh, good, thanks. People in the North don't do that stuff. But if you were broken down on the side of the road, literally every single vehicle would stop. Every single one would stop and be like, can I help you? Do you need anything? Like, can I give you a lift? They, you know. So yeah, the way that people help each other is, is fundamental. 
because again, when it's minus 45, like, you have to work together. You can't be kind of a loner and, and make that work. No, not, not at all. Not unless you're just like one tough son of a bitch. Um, yeah. But that's, that's so, that's so interesting to hear that though, that the, the interaction and the pleasantries might not necessarily be there, but the actual act is to like a, a, another level. Yeah, it really is. And it, and it is funny to realize that those pleasantries are just sort of like almost pretend or almost like fake versus are they actually going to follow up with the real thing? Oh, yeah, no, pleasantries are definitely societal acting for sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I, I always noticed it when I left the Yukon, you know, like I'd fly down to Vancouver or where a big city and I'd be buying something and the, the person would be like, oh, have a nice day. And so I'd turn around to them and say, you too. And I realized they weren't even looking at me. They weren't even smiling. They just said it out of force of habit. I was like, oh, that person just said that and they didn't even mean it. <laughs> it was always a bit of a shock versus when you live in the Yukon, people just don't say that kind of stuff. Or, or you know them and they say it because they care about you and they mean it. Right, right. That's interesting. Um, I, I like pleasantries, but I usually just use them as a means of disarming someone to like jump ahead which is actually like what, <laughs> what forced me to like eventually come up with that. Cause I would always meet people when I'm traveling. Like if you're like, I was a consultant, so I would like travel in airplanes and all that all the time, like every week. So like, that just means you meet a lot of cab drivers and a lot of like, you're sitting on the airplane next to a lot of people or like, you're just, yeah. or you're like checking into a hotel or you're like you're meeting clients, you're meeting people that are like at the client that you're only going to meet for a couple of seconds. So I, I would always like use pleasantries as a means of disarming, which is how I got to that. What do you do that makes you happy question? Cause it's such an easy way to be like, okay, I've said, hello, we can work past that. Now let's get into some deep shit, right? <laughs> like that, that's, let's jump <laughs> ahead, like that. you know, yeah, cut to the chase, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Cause when you're like in your point again, about just as an observation about, I guess, human behavior is like, if you're in a situation where like, no, we're going to have to deal with some stuff today. Like we're really out in the middle of nowhere here. And the climate and the terrain is something to really deal with. I'm not going to really like, I don't want to say waste my time, but I'm not going to worry about having to have this like type of societal baggage of just saying hello. Cause I would also imagine that, or tell me if this is even on, on point or near the target, but I would imagine once you did get to know people there, they'd probably like have a deeper connection or take more time. And like, it's more of a, a longer time spent with someone or getting to know them as opposed to a more situation where things are pleasant all the time or pleasantries are abound. Yeah, yeah. I think Africans especially, they're all about family and all about community. And so it was really common, you know, when, when you stop to talk to someone in the street, you ask like, and how's your family and how are your children and how's your uncle? Like, and if that conversation takes 20 minutes, then so be it. Like that's that's the purpose of life. It's not like you're supposed to get to your appointment on time. Like, don't worry about that. <laughs> Appointments can wait, right? Not, not in our world. Well, I guess depending on the world that you're stepped in. Or in like in the case of of you, like how far away you've driven, um, but that that is something that I think is like there's something ab- about busyness and that uh, this like Roman philosopher uh, Marcus Aurelius said of and I don't remember exactly the quote. If I if I had been better slept this week, I might have been able to recall it, but it's gonna be it's not gonna come to me. Uh, but it's something about like being weary of a busy life, and I think that there's like a lot of now it now it's too easy to be busy all the time right it's it's too easy to have like appointments you have to keep and 
spontaneity goes away, but then maybe actually this is the first time I've thought about this, but maybe all the delight goes away then too. Right. I always think about it in terms of busyness is a really good distraction because then you don't have to actually think about anything important because you're just too busy, like getting to the next thing or dealing with the next like crisis at work or, you know, get your kids to school on time or like, and so I think one of the hardest parts about long-term travel or about like setting out to do something sort of different from society is that you end up with all this time on your hands to think about like, all right, what do I actually want to do with life? What, what, what am I actually doing here? Instead of like, when you just go to work every day, somebody else is already allocating that for you. Every day you just show up and do whatever you're told to do. And like we said, 10 years can go by on autopilot like that. So yeah, it's the, the funniness of once, busy, once you remove busyness from your life, you suddenly start having all these really expansive thoughts and they can be kind of scary and kind of intimidating because suddenly you have to like have this self-motivated direction or purpose. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's the industrialized world is much, one of much more difficulty in the mental faculties than like what yeah, you're doing. Yeah, which is interesting because, it, it, well, I guess you have to deploy them in such a more focused and disciplined way. Because like, when you're out in the trails, like that is definitely you're using like all of your mental capacities because you have to problem solve or like play a constant game of horse trading of like, well, what if I do this? But then what about that? And then what about that? Well, what about the other thing? You know, like, so you're using them, but it's not, it's not all of your, your discipline and effort has to go to that. No, no. And then it gets really interesting too, because it, a trip like the ones I do, it involves a ton of different aspects. So one of the big ones in West Africa is you have to get a visa for every country. And they're really hard to get like countries like the Congo. They just don't really accept tourists. It's not a thing. And so when you show up at the embassy and you say, I want a visa, they're like, no, you can't have one. They're like, go to your home country or like, and then, so you have to play this game of trying to visit different embassies and jumping through all of their hoops and meeting all their requirements, you know? And it's like, oh, they want a printout of your bank statement. You're like, okay, yeah. So I have to like get online and get my bank statement. It's like, well, that might take you the rest of the day. And you're like catching taxis, trying to get to an internet cafe, like down the streets, the printer doesn't work, that like so on and so forth. And so you, you're constantly like using different mental faculties to solve like what's the problem of today or what's the problem of the week before the, like the trip can progress. How does your concept of time change when you start doing these things? It changes so much, JR, and actually so much so that I wrote a chapter about it in my last book. Um, you know, growing up in Australia and then living in Canada, I, I think the world is very time focused. You know, you, you get to school at nine o'clock, you start work at 8.30, everything is on time. And then you get to Africa or even Latin America and people just don't care about time at all. It's irrelevant. And, and so it, it, at first it's quite frustrating because, you know, you have an appointment at the embassy and you show up on time and they're like an hour and a half late and, you know, you're frustrated and this is a waste of time. But then slowly, like as the months go on, I think a really big part of it is that I caught up on sleep. I didn't realize that for years and years working at a desk job, I was just in sleep deficit. But after you've lived with the sun for kind of three months, you know, I, I go to bed when the sun goes down and I get up when the sun comes up you just feel different. You just have a different kind of headspace. And then you realize too, they, they call it Africa time. Everything runs on Africa time. And once you sort of give in and you just shrug your shoulders and you say, oh, 
I guess I could just get a cold drink and sit in the shade. Like it's not very stressful. <laughs> and so after a while, you start to really enjoy this idea of like, I actually don't have any time commitments. My life is relatively time like unbound. It's really nice. It's really freeing. And it feels like a big sort of weight comes off your shoulders. Oh, I so bet. Now I, don't, I don't wear a watch anymore. I don't carry a phone. So I try hard not to know what time it is specifically. That's interesting. So even if you're back in like a city, you still don't carry a, a phone? No. Huh. No, I, I try not to have a phone. I feel like there's a few reasons for that. And, and part of it is that I may be a little bit like addicted to the internet. And so I think if it was available to me, I'd be one of those people who's just like constantly playing with their phone. And so it, it just feels easier to just, instead of having to like resist the temptation, just don't put it in front of me and I don't have to think about it. Yeah, that's that's a that's a good move. I totally can understand that. Plus, I don't even. I think you're probably getting more out of out of living, right? You're getting more out of living than having one, right? Oh, it is always strange. I guess pre-COVID, but you know, like I'd go to a bar and and you could look around and not make eye contact with a single person because the thirty people in the room are all looking at their phone. It was always really strange to me. Or yeah, when you walk down the street, the number of people who they're just not even aware of their surroundings because they're staring at their phone. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's surprising to me. And, and I guess I'm, I'm old enough where I'm like, I don't really want that in my life. So I'm going to choose not to have it. Yeah. I don't blame you. Yeah. I try to uh, minimize it um, as much as I can because of, because of that. Um, I always wax and wane on it though. Like I, I probably would be better off if I just got rid of it um, and just like, or lot, or like got another phone that, you know, didn't have anything on it or just a camera, just using it as a camera. Cause it is nice, the slimness of the camera. And I like taking pictures, but yeah, other than and that, like, and there's no doubt like having a phone is very convenient. You know, when you mm-hmm. need to call someone or especially for bureaucracy or to look something up, it, you can turn like an hour job into a one minute job if you have a phone. So it, it can be very convenient. To, and, and so sometimes when I'm with friends, I'm always like, Hey, can I borrow your phone? Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. they, get annoyed, they get annoyed by that. Yeah, just get one already. <laughs> exactly yeah that, that's hilarious um so you're you're about to go in australia in an adventure there once you get out of quarantine um so how does how does it feel starting to plan one of these adventures in your uh home country yeah it's uh it's really exciting jr and uh i grew up here i left when i was about 22 so i haven't lived here in 18 years or something um, and so there is a ton of this country I've never seen. Like I've seen way more of the US of Canada than I have seen of Australia. So I'm really excited to, you know, there's tropical rainforests, there's snow-capped mountains, beautiful white sand beaches, the deserts in the middle. There's so much stuff that I'm excited to go and see and explore and learn about. Um, but also like I have a little bit of trepidation. I'm a little bit afraid that I'll find Australia a little bit dull or a little bit kind of mundane. Um, and that's, I think, part of the reason I left is because Australians typically are like, oh, yeah, let's like sit in the shade and drink a cold beer. That's like adventure for Australians, typically. Versus, you know, when, when I lived in Canada, uh, I was always like, let's go snowboarding, let's go kayaking, let's climb a mountain, like do act, very active lifestyle. Australians are a bit more sedentary than that. So, yeah, I, I'm excited and I'm also really like, uh, yeah, a bit of trepidation to see what the culture is like and if I like the culture or if I'm even like a little bit embarrassed by the culture. Hmm. 10 out of 10 out of your use of trepidatious. Um, 
but no, I can understand that. Like, I definitely can understand that, uh, especially having been away for so long. We'll have to talk again when you, after you go through this, because I feel like you're going to be a bit, you're setting yourself to be delighted, setting yourself up to be delighted. <laughs> I think I'm going to be delighted by the landscapes and the wildness for sure. And it's going to be pretty strange to like see a kangaroo and like, I don't know, they're pretty funny looking things. Yeah. There's a lot of funny looking animals in uh, Australia. Yeah. And, I, and I'm usually a person who can get well delighted by things like that. So it'll be fun. I'll be, I'll be a little bit like a kid in a candy store kind of rediscovering, you know, all these things about my own country that I've forgotten over the years. Oh, well, yeah, I bet. Definitely. Um, you know, it's so funny that you say that though, because in the States, we, I feel like we all view Australia, like, you know, broad stroke culturally as uh, being like this land of like wildly scary animals and like crazy landscapes and like people, everyone's crocodile Dundee um, and just like going out there and just like wrestling an alligator or things like that. But uh, it's, it's, so it's funny to hear you that you're like entering this being like a little uh, hesitant as to what you're going to discover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i bet i was actually just reading recently about the rainforests and I, they're like the northeast right there's a lot of tropical rainforests over there yeah exactly yeah that's so interesting um and but there's not how many mountains are in australia at least that you're planning in your route that are like large because i have no i have no understanding of the mountain ranges in australia yeah there's just one mountain range that kind of parallels the east coast so it kind of goes from Sydney down towards Melbourne. And, and it actually has ski resorts. It gets quite a bit of snow in the winter, which, which is now in Australia. Um, so I'm excited to get up there. I'll probably hike up the tallest mountain because it's not very high. It's, it's like a day hike. You can just walk to the top of it. How many, how many thousand feet or how many meters is it? I knew you were going to ask me that. And I don't uh, know. It's okay. So if you don't know, that's, that's okay. It's probably something like 7,000 feet if it's, if it's not I'm that. I'm going to Google uh, it right now. Uh, it's 2,228 meters, but we're okay. going to have to click Wikipedia to get it in feet. 7,300 feet. 7,000. Oh, so I was actually not that bad, not that far off with my first whack. Um, okay, so that's like the first. I, I know this because I, I lived in San Diego and I used to go up to this mountain, Mount Laguna, and it's like around 7,000 feet. So it's like that's like the start of when it feels like a mountain. But I've been to other that's peaks right, yeah. where it's like 12,000 feet, you know, 13,000 feet, and you're just like, okay, this is a different thing. Um, so I know yeah. the difference between the, the those two kind of altitudes. They're more like big hills. They're not actually mountains. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the mountain range in near San Diego, San Diego is called the Plateau Mountain Range. And it, that's exactly what it kind of feels like. It's like, oh, there's just this big hill. And then at the top of it, it's flat. <laughs> yeah. It's actually just a thin, flat stretch. And that's about it. But... That's cool. So are you, you're heading in and then you're just going North? Like, are you, uh, well, I guess you, it's, it probably makes a lot more sense to start this in the winter because of the, uh, heat in the summer, or are you just kind of, or you're going to probably have to bear that as well though. Right. I'll have to bear it to some degree. Um, but the general rule is if, if you drew a horizontal line through Australia at about the halfway mark, you don't really want to be North of that line in the summer. So like January, February, March, it's just too hot and it's also because it's so close to the equator up there it's very tropical and they get a ton of rain so they have like the rainy season and so then basically like all the dirt roads are closed because there's it's just too much rain you can't drive on them so the general plan will be to sort of explore southern australia during australia's summer and then northern australia during australia's winter 
Um, and I guess ideally I would have done some sort of like circle and it would look neat and it would be all tidy. But in reality, there's still some COVID travel restrictions. There's, you know, the climate. I'd love to spend Christmas with my family. So in reality, I think I'm going to do a lot of zigzagging and a lot of back and forward. That yeah, makes, that... The goal is to try and to try and explore everywhere. Definitely, I'll get to every state. Um, I'll you know get to all the remote corners and hopefully a couple of the deserts in the middle as well. Yeah, that's really that's really cool. Um, so everywhere in North, like how hot is hot? Like it's like really hot, right? Like one fifteen, one eighteen has been setting records. Um, you know, on the weather map, when they color code the different weather, like whether it's eighty Fahrenheit or ninety or hundred, it's like orange red in australia they actually added purple when it's above 55 celsius which has got to be like 120 something i think yeah 118. yeah so regions that's 131 holy so hell regions actually get forecast of being 130 so yeah it gets hot <laughs> wow is that like a more recent development that is relatively recent yeah in the last like five years it started when I grew up, it was probably unusual for it to go above about 110 or 115, but now it's starting to get up towards 130. Wow. Yeah. That is unlivable, which yeah. I guess is yeah. why in you summer, it's, it. it's intense. Yeah. And there are parts where that'll be a really dry heat, which I like and I grew up with, but then the further north you get, the more humid it gets until it's like, you know, Southern Florida where it's just crazy humid. Yeah, but also like 30 degrees hotter, which is nuts. Yeah, yeah. It, it'll be intense. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds wild. So my geography, I won't spend too much time on it to make this a geography lesson, but is Perth like also getting that get that hot? Because that's more on the northwest side of Australia, right? Yeah, Perth is on the far west. Right. Um, and it does get very hot in the summer. So it it'd definitely have days in 120s in summer for sure. Yeah, it's wow how do I describe it? I guess Perth is basically in a desert. It's that and, and sort of everything from Perth from the West until you get nearly all the way to the East coast. It's all just desert. Yeah. yeah like which almost nobody lives in the middle. Yeah. So I, this is actually, so I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with geography. So I I've looked at the map of Australia multiple times and it's so intimidating. Like of all the places that I would love to travel, I would love to go to Australia, but it's so intimidating because of like, because of that, like there's just this massive, like badland i was just like it's just it there's there's not many lakes it just seems like there's just the sun and that's just that's it pretty much yeah no trees in a lot of it just sort of these little scrubby bush things but of course i mean you can come to australia and and have an amazing time for months and months and never even go to that part you can just cruise up and down the east coast and it's like tropical paradise like white sand beaches palm trees perfect waves like really nice little towns you know it doesn't have to be wild and remote if you don't want it to be oh yeah no definitely definitely not We're, yeah this is a continent so the, the thousands of miles between <laughs> yeah no that's yeah. great um what's like how have you been financing this trip so before the first one in north america you saved up for it and then africa you saved up for it again is this one yeah. you're doing more through patreon and things like that yeah, this time I've sort of uh, moved on a bit. So I've got a Patreon now and I'm, I'm getting some views on YouTube. Um, I'm now writing for a handful of magazines as well, which is really nice. That was, it was a goal of mine to sort of become successful in that world. And I've published a couple of books as well, which is, which is fun about my adventures and, you know, the, the things I've seen and the people I've met. 
Um, so sort of all of those sources, like the goal all along was that none of them are going to make me rich or, or none of them are going to let me retire. But, you know, if I can have like five different income sources making three or $500 a month, then like that's enough to travel on. That's great. Yeah. You just, you figure, you figure it out where there's a will, there's a way. Um, that's, that's really great. Um, and also congrats on being able to do that. You're like fully off the grid now, both with not needing uh, to have that. Thanks, JR. I'll take you congrats, but let's just, let's hold off and say it isn't quite working yet. Um, <laughs> I'll probably still have to like go back, you know, to a desk job. Yeah. Money will run out. I, I'm still spending more than I'm earning. So th there's an end to all of this. Probably. I, I don't know. I'm going to keep trying my hardest to make it work. Yeah. Yeah, possibly. Right. I mean, it's, it, there's, there's, there's a, at least a path towards that, right. There's a, a more, yeah. there's more of a, uh, proof towards heading the right direction right yeah yeah and, and i always like to point out too you know like i don't have a cell phone i've never had a tv you know i don't own a house so it, it's it's sort of a life choice to be like i'm gonna just funnel all my money into these ridiculous adventures instead of that other stuff but it means you know i, I don't have enough money to have both so it, it's not like i kind of I'm rich or, or have some lucky circumstance. I just have chosen to spend my money in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have material wealth, but you have wealth in other, other means. Right. Yeah. And it's been a lot of fun. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Has it changed you as a person? Oh, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. In, in many, many different ways. And probably the, the biggest one from Africa would be um, trying to treat other people the way that I was treated in Africa just that amazing warmth, that amazing, like welcoming feeling. Yeah. So I, I try really hard to, to be that person. That's, that's who I want to be in my life. I like that. Um, I like that a lot because recently I was thinking about uh, the phrase, you should treat others the way you want to be treated. Because I think the problem with that is a lot of people don't treat themselves very well. Mm -hmm. Or they don't have right the proper models in their head of how to treat others, right? Yeah, and I think, and I think that that really resonates with me. I'd never sort of seen it demonstrated or had a model of what it actually looks like, because you know, like we said, pleasantries are great, and people in Canada and Australia they are friendly and they are welcoming and they're kind, but not nearly to the same degree as Africans. Not nearly like the same level of trust and the same level of like just let your guard down and just be like really open to people. Yeah. And so once I'd had it demonstrated to me, you know, for literally years and years and years, it really became like, wow, that's inspirational. And, and that's what I want to be like. That's amazing. Hmm. So out of all of your travels, it seems like Africa really stuck, stuck in there, huh? So much, man. And, and there's the saying too, among people who've spent time in Africa where it's like, well, once you've lived this and you've experienced it, it's like, well, you're going to be fucked for life because you'll, you'll never, like no experience will ever live up to this and you'll always want to come back to Africa and, and have this same feeling and this same kind of elation just to be here. Was it palpable from the beginning? Ah. Oh. I think in the beginning, like I didn't speak French. And so the very first country was Morocco and then kind of Morocco, Mauritania, they're very different than North African culture, not so much sort of Africa, Africa, as you might think of it. Um, and I, you know, I was a bit nervous. I, I didn't have my footing. I wasn't sure. I would say it probably took like three months to, to sink in. And then it was kind of like, 
wow, I can really like smile and have fun and laugh and banter. You know, when you're buying street food, you don't just walk up and say like, oh, hi, could I please have some food and give them money and then like sit down and eat it. No, you joke and you laugh and you be silly. And soon enough, like some guys high-fiving you and then the women are coming over and trying to marry you. And like, it's just this, like Africans are always joyful and like having a game and having a laugh and playing. And so, you know, and especially because I show up like I'm the white guy and so I'm a novelty. As much as it's the cultural experience for me, I have to really remember it's a cultural experience for them as well. Like I am their entertainment. I am their window into like, where are you from? What's Canada like? Tell us a story about where you come from. And so it, it just became so enjoyable and so like a highlight of my day to be like, it's around midday, I'm driving through a village. It's like, I got to find street food. Like, where's the street food at? I want to stop. I want to chat to some people. Yeah, it was great. That's, that's amazing. Um, you're making me, I've, I've wanted to go there for a long time. You're making me want to go. Um, oh yeah it's incredible don't like don't hesitate it, it is amazing you will be blown away oh yeah i definitely uh i definitely could see that um it's interesting that you made that that comment about north africa because as we were like looking talking about this and i was looking at your map um because i just have like your map pulled up over here on another screen and uh I was thinking about like how like North Africa along the Mediterranean is like a totally different region, right? Like we think of Africa and, you know, even we're talking about it now as a singular noun, but you know, really like it's enormous and it's, you know, one of the most diverse. I mean, if you want to just look at it from a raw genetic standpoint, it's the most genetically diverse region in the, in the a whole of the earth is Africa, you know, the, the continent of Africa, which is, you know, quite a bit larger than North America, even though on our Mercator projection looks like it's, you know, roughly the same size. Like, no, 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 it's, it's massive. And the differences between it are just as, just as grand. That's right. Absolutely. And yeah, it is, it is sort of a trap to fall into to refer to it as Africa. Like it's one thing, but yeah, it is unbelievably diverse and enormous. It's, it's over a billion people. um, And it's, I looked this up one time. I think it's 20% of the landmass on Earth. So it's it's ginormous. Yeah, and I experienced that firsthand. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. <laughs> um, what, uh, what, did, what, what region uh, did you find the most uh, majestic but the most difficult to cross? Like, was it over in, like, the national parks in the east, in the east side of Africa or...? For me, I, um, you know, I said I set out and I kind of saw myself as Indiana Jones and I wanted this adventure. And so for me, the part of West Africa that is kind of like central West Africa. So the first part is very Arab, like Morocco, Mauritania. Then you drop into like classic West Africa. So you've got like Senegal, Mali, Togo, Benin, Burkina Faso. They all feel kind of like a unit. And then once you cross Nigeria, then you get into Cameroon, Gabon, Congo, Congo, Angola. That portion right there, it might be one of the most wild places on earth in terms of like no infrastructure, no tourists. Like I crossed a border where the border guard had never seen a foreigner in his whole life. Uh, You know, went into villages where the children had never seen white people before. It was like, uh, it's like, I've always wanted to get, you know, off the map and, and that whole sort of cliche and there were a few times in West Africa where I was like, oh, I think I might have bit off a bit more than I can chew. I'm like, I actually am off the map and I, this is kind of heavy. I'm like, all right, I'll just have to like roll with it, you know? 
And so whenever I daydream about Africa, without a doubt, they were the hardest days of my whole life. They were the most challenging days of my whole life and they were the most rewarding. And, and it's one of those things where I think while you're doing it, you enjoy it, but it's in hindsight, you look back and you say, that was incredible. I, I don't know that I'll ever be able to have experiences like that again anywhere on the planet. That's, that's, that's gotta be awesome in the truest sense of the word, not in the overuse of it. Like just like completely just leaving you in awe. Um, Crossing the Congo JR was like the pinnacle of my like adventuring life. Anything I've ever done in my life, you know, on this ramshackle ferry crossing the Congo river with a whole bunch of locals like packed in around the Jeep and the ferry boat captain like invites me up on the bridge and he's like yelling at me over the scream of the big diesel engine and like, like oh, the wind's whipping in my face. I'm like, Oh, I'm doing it. I'm crossing the Congo river. It's so exciting. That's amazing. How, how was that? What did that feel like? <laughs> It felt surreal at first, even just to like drive up to it because it's as big as a lake. Like you can hardly see the other side. Um, and just to sort of like have context in my mind of like, I understand where I am on a world map, but sort of the reality of like, this is what it is. And, and I'd read books of people who've done it before and, you know, dreamed about it and thought about it. And the name of the little town where the ferry crossing is, it's quite famous. And and so to actually like be on the ground walking around that town, it, it was like a rush. It was like, I really did it. Like I'm, I'm actually achieving my dreams. That's got it. That had to be, yeah, that had to be surreal. That had to be like out of body. It was a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, like you're exhausted and you're covered in mud and you've like been on the go for like so long. And, and it's all sort of intimidating too, because so you leave, there's two countries called the Congo. Uh, there's the Republic of Congo, then immediately the Democratic Republic of Congo. And so you've only got a single entry visa to every country and they all have like very strict time limits. So you, you must enter on this state, must leave on this state. And so you leave the Republic of Congo, you're stamped out legally, and then you've got like 20 miles to drive through like no man's land, which my friends nearly rolled their car. We're stuck in the mud. It's like crazy humid. There's no road, we're, like bridges are out. So then we're like, oh my God, we don't even know if we can keep going. But legally, we can't turn back because we don't have a double entry visa for the country we just came from. So it's like, no matter what happens, we have to keep going forward. Like even if we get to a river that's deeper than the Jeep, we have to find a way to go forward. So, you know, you, you go and you go and then you, you find a way to get stamped in and then like you find a way to cross the broken bridge and then you find, and, and so it's this like series of, it doesn't really matter what happens, we have to keep forging ahead. And, and so it's, it's quite intimidating and it's quite like heavy. It isn't, it isn't lighthearted like, oh, I'm on a vacation now. It's, it's actually, yeah, it's big. And, and like I was saying at the very start, I enjoy when life is more challenging. I enjoy the, the rewards that I get from achieving all of those challenges. Yeah, I, I think, well, that's amazing. And I think that what you're tapping into, like I, I think what you're doing is truly exceptional. And I think what's some of the most exceptional part of it is the gumption or the notion or the voice in your head or whatever got you out there to do it and then to keep doing it and it's getting you to keep doing it, which uh, it seems at this point it's a self-perpetuating machine, which is, which is beautiful. Um, I mean, but I, JR, there's definitely a very fine line between brave and crazy. And usually this is the funny thing. People only get labeled one or the other based on the outcome of what they did. 
which is kind of which is kind of fascinating because yeah if if you do something that's clearly crazy but you're successful at it people will call you brave they're the same thing no brave i i think that most things exist in multi-dimensions that i think okay uh, you're gonna get my philosophical little little elevator stick um i i think that um the truth only only <clears throat> the truth only resides in paradox so I think brave and crazy are actually the same thing. The only difference is the narrative of the speaker or the audience, right? Like, I think what you're saying yep. is a, a truth about the way that we create these stereotypes to either lump things into sections or to understand experiences. Um, and you're right. The only thing is, is the outcome. Like someone, Evil Knievel was only brave because he stuck the landing. If he would have just died on his first attempt, he would just, well, he's crazy. And what does it matter? Um, so yeah, no, I, I think brave is crazy. I mean, brave is the only thing that I would say that makes you brave is you're, you're being crazy for the right means or for virtuous means. Right. Um, that's right. You almost can't be brave unless you're doing something that isn't sort of very like smart or very well-trodden path. Like I'm going to be the first person to climb Mount Everest. You have to do something a bit oddball before anyone will even call you brave. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you have to be willing nuance to. Nuance on that. I, I do like to think there is a difference between like brave, or, or sorry, there's a difference between crazy and stupid. So I've, I've always thought crazy is doing something oddball, but doing it with planning, doing it with forethought. You know, it, it's jumping out of a plane, having taken the training course for how to use a parachute, whereas stupid is jumping out of a plane with no idea what you're doing. So both of them are still jumping out of a plane, but one of them is a bit more planning or a bit more preparation. So I do like to think that I tend a lot more towards crazy. And I'm, because I'm an engineer originally, I, I don't think usually I'm very stupid. I think normally I'm just crazy. Yeah, that's, I think that's a great way of, of looking at it. Um, because, yeah, I mean, you could be calculated and, and crazy still that's totally fine that's exactly right yeah and and you understand the risks and you go into it with all the knowledge you can gather and you say like evil can evil he says yeah things might still go wrong but i'm fully aware of that versus like oh, i'm just gonna hit that ramp at full speed i don't even know what's gonna happen i never even thought about it yeah yeah no uh that's that's a great point they're both uh that's the thing i was thinking about is they're both bucking the status quo but it's just it, the means of doing it like what's the means of doing it um, and then when you get to bravery, I guess it, it gets to a higher order of virtue, I suppose, right? A higher order of, of, of goodness or some kind of other quality to it, to the ends you're trying to, to meet. Um, but again, that just depends on the storyteller, doesn't it? Whether they, whether they make it out to be that that was a very brave and virtuous thing you did or like that person's a moron and they were lucky they didn't die. Yeah, even just using brave as editorializing, I suppose, right? I agree 100%, yeah. Yeah, it's because... It's skewing, and, and the thing is, is, is humans, again, kind of going back to the whole evolutionary paradox kind of thing is that a lot of times we just take language at face value that we don't even realize that even just hearing that, if we don't, aren't, aren't present enough to catch it, that might skew our views on whatever is being said. Yeah, so true. And it's interesting, a word like brave, it adds some sort of like virtuous quality. It's like this was a, this was a justifiable thing to have attempted for all of these like good good reasons yeah whereas it's so easy to just substitute a different word in there and then suddenly it's like this was a, a stupid undertaking that had no possible benefits or like good outcome right right just stay on that track stay going straight stay on the level exactly. field yeah, um, yeah. Derailing, 
roller coaster is obviously not a very intelligent thing to do. No, no, no. The, the calculated thing is to stay in, in place. But what I was going to also say is, you know, I, I think what you're also tapping into is like a gen, a general, genuine human desire to explore and challenge themselves and, you know, use, use their hands and be physical and, you know, arise and sleep with the sun. Like, you know, I, I research and read a lot about the ancient world. And one of the things that I've, you know, when I get rid of my desk job, one of these days, one of the things that I'm really looking forward to is kind of enlisting a more Roman model where like you still have the same number of hours every day. So essentially what you start thinking of is like, you look at productivity, productivity differently. So you rise and sleep with the sun, but the days in the winter where it's shorter, the daylight is shorter, right? You recognize that and maybe you sleep a little bit more, but you have more time to do other things, right? Um, but you're like time that you're in leisure almost. You have more time for leisure, right? Where in the summer or, you know, if you have more hours of the day and you're rising and sleeping with the sun, um, you start looking at it more where like you do, you do have a different outlook on the world when there's sunlight, right? You do have a different outlook. You feel a little different energy. Like right now it's summer in the States, right? And it's 7.30 at night and it still looks bright, very bright where I'm at, right? So like all of those, you know, things do affect you and, you know, going about it in the way that you are with, you know, kind of surrendering to it and really digging into it. I feel like you're tapping into something, a level of fulfillment that is so detached from, you know, I mean, think of it, how many people are, you're living that type of lifestyle in the whole of the earth, you know, not that many in comparison to how many people are, especially in the industrialized world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I agree with you hundred percent that there is something there about sort of a more primitive life or a more, basic maybe is the wrong word or simple is the wrong word but yeah yeah we have some sort of calling or like i mean it, it's what our ancestors have done since the beginning of time it's only been in the last couple of hundred years that we've done this industrialized version so it makes sense that we're a lot more predisposed to do the old version and that we get fulfillment out of that and it makes us feel whole and complete because it's the only reason we're alive because our ancestors did it for so long yeah. And you know, you just gave me a whole new perspective on the phrase, the beginning of time, because it's almost like it's the beginning of when we started counting it. And mm -hmm. right. Cause like once we started, I mean, we, we started counting time by seasons before, but it was like telling us when to expect weather shifts or crop seasons and things like that. Right. But it wasn't necessarily in the way that we did. It was like the starting of that, right? Like, you know, Oh, the, this complex, you know, hedge that we've, we've built, is perfectly aligned right now. Well, okay, it's summer. You know, it's time for us to to plant the crops. Um, but then that kind of creeped into the point of where you were just getting at earlier when you said that you don't carry a watch and, and how much your concept of time changes. We're, we're taking it to the extreme degree on the other side, where it's almost like once we started counting time, we kind of crept us to this inevitable inevitable bell curve, I suppose. Right. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it's such an interesting thought of like do you really need to know what time the watch says it is or do you just need to look at the sun and make decisions on that? Like, oh, the sun's going down. I might start cooking dinner. Like that's, that's probably a better reason to cook dinner than, oh, the, the display says that it's 6 p.m. Like, yeah, live more just sort of in tune with whatever's actually happening around you and make decisions based on that instead of some arbitrary digital display that, you know, they change anyway because they decide to drop daylight savings. So it, it kind of shows you like how, how arbitrary it is anyway. It's like much better to like, like you said, live with the seasons, live with the sun.
Yeah, it's so arbitrary and it causes so many, so much chaos and problems, like so much, so many adverse health effects, which once again, just says like, okay, we're arbitrarily dealing with something that's probably fixed, but unquantifiable, um, mm-hmm. which is something that I also would say is that living that type of lifestyle is unquantifiable as far as how the differences are, where the other side of it is much more quantifiable, which once again, actually goes to what you were saying before, where you put a price on happiness of $150 as a a ticket, it cheapens the overall experience where it's hard to quantify the level of happiness or delight or enjoyment you'll have on a free activity because you don't really know. And sometimes it is, it's a crapshoot. But on the other side of it, 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 it lessens it because it is, quantified either in dollars or in you know units of time exactly yeah i couldn't agree more that's really interesting um i spent a lot of time especially more recently because i've, I've kind of had like another wave of this thought of um I, I i had this thought and it was that all art is actually just time so like i was trying okay. to square um basketball i use basketball as my analog a lot uh i like basketball a lot um but i was just trying to use basketball and painting and music and i was trying to figure out like what is like the uh unifier of all of those things how can i how can i describe those things as art because i definitely think you know lebron james is an artist even though you look at him and he looks like some type of warrior or just some kind of like you know like freak athlete right like um and but you know also at the same token like Cezanne or, you know, Van Gogh, like they're definitely artists, but then you know, also Jimi Hendrix is an artist, right? So like, how do you mm-hmm. get that? And I was thinking about music and I realized that music is all just time. It's all rhythm, regardless of yep. something you're creating is a melody. It's all rhythm, just the means and the medium of doing that is time. And then I thought about basketball and basketball is just like all this preparation of exercise and drilling, which is not that much different than the preparation you would need for a musician of finger exercises, depending on your medium. Again, like guitar, I play guitar. I'll just stick with that then, you know, like finger exercises. Like sometimes if I want to play for an hour, like I haven't practiced in a while, I can't do it. Right. And then if I had to play a show in front of people, like I'm going to have to put on a performance, I have to work through the emotions of that. Right. So there's, there's other analogs to the same thing, the performance, the, 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 the technique, the discipline that goes into it is the same, but the snapshot is different. Music is always existing in motion. You can't understand it if it's not existing in motion. Same with sports. And then the only difference in like a painting thing is that the art actually only exists as it's being created. And then at the end of it, it's almost like a different thing than the beginning. You're snapshotting, you're freezing the time that it took to do it, right? So it's almost a different thing. Um, And then it kind of got me on to that life is just living, right? Life is just time. So how are we not just artists of our own life, right? Because um, I also think a lot I about like that. The, I like that line of thought a lot. The last thing I'll, I'll tie together with is also I, I obsess about media a lot. And there's this great author. Uh, I think he was a professor, but his name is Marshall McLuhan. And he wrote this book, um, which is really the foundation for the modern media apparatus, even though he didn't really intend it to be, um, called The Message is the Medium. And really what it means is whatever means, whatever information you're trying to convey, the medium in which you're doing it is more important than what you're conveying because it conveys the most amount of the meaning to it. Right. So it, once again, like it's just, you know, experience, which is all a summation of time 
And what you allow yourself to experience is manipulating your time and your message and all of that. So like we, we are, you know, arbiters, <laughs> arbiters of our own experience and we are our own artists. And in doing so, it's just what we choose to do with time, which almost sounds like that cliche Lord of the Rings quote, right? Where it's like something that the last turn of it is uh, all the only choice that we have is to what we do with time, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. I really like that line of thought, JR. And, and I agree wholeheartedly. And, and that's something that often comes up when people ask me, you know, why was I able to do the things I've done or what, what, why did I break away from just sitting at a desk for the rest of my life? And I really do think it's, it's something about, I feel very strongly that time is the only thing that I have in this world and how I choose to spend my time is going to define my life and define my experience. Yeah. And, and going to work is a necessity because I want to buy some stuff and I want to have a life but I want to be really careful to walk that balance of like, don't let too much of my time be dedicated towards work because that will just define my whole life. And, and when I'm old and gray, someone will say, what did you do with your life? Say, so, oh, I just spent most of it going to work. Yeah. And so I feel like it is, it is a fascinating way to think about life of we are all artists and the medium we have to work with is time. So what are you going to create with the time that you've been given? Exactly. Yeah. 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 And, and it's always really important to remember too. And this sounds so cliche and I didn't appreciate it until uh, someone close to me passed away recently and uh, realizing that time is so short, like, and there are no guarantees and none of us know today could very well be the last day for any of us. And there's no, we all think that, Oh yeah, I'm going to live until I'm 80, you know, 85, but it's just not true at all. And so the idea of like, delaying what you actually want to do and how you want to spend your time thinking I'll do it when I'm retired. I feel like that's such a dangerous trap to fall into because there's nothing, there's no guarantee that that will actually come to pass. Not at all. Yeah. No. Um, and also time is so funny, right? Like I, I like this Einstein quote, like Einstein did these like essays before he died. Um, and one of them like uh, was someone asked like, can you explain relativity to like a fifth grader? Something along those lines. I'm probably butchering it. Um, but his response was um, when you put your hands, uh, no, I think he did it this way first. Let me turn it around. Um, when you're spending, no, I, okay, all right, hold on. I'm stumbling this. Okay. If you put your hand on a stove and there's a fire, two seconds feels like an infinity. When you're yeah. sitting across the table from a lovely person, two hours feels like an instant. Right, time in our perception, perception of it is that it's this very linear thing, but we only think of it that way because we quantify it, right? Like, how many times, right. especially now in like a year of COVID, how fast did that go by? But how exhausting was it? With how much dense of activity was it to the point where it's almost like funny to think about how much happened versus how short of a period it was, um, or like you know how much things can change or, you know, you see somebody again and it just seems like it was an instant or like memories that, uh, you know, feel like they're right there next to you, but they're like years past or how moments can affect your life. You know, like a, a single instant can affect your life for years to come for the entirety of the remainder of it. Right. Like time is, is very funny like that. Definitely. It, it's not linear. And yeah, I feel like it's a, it's a trap to fall into because we, we do measure it linearly and it's very clinical, but the way that we perceive it, I think is very different than that. Yeah. And something that I've found in my life is um, 
I think it, it's got to do with how our memories are stored. And I don't know if you know much about how um, video works on a computer, but when a computer is storing a video file, it doesn't bother storing every single frame of the video. It just remembers the differences between the frames. So right now you and I talking, it's more or less just a picture of your face that isn't varying much from frame to frame. So it doesn't have to remember much. It can actually just remember the differences unless there was a sudden cut, you know, and it jumped to a, something else, then it has to sort of start again and make a whole new memory and then remember the differences from that. And I think that our brains work the same way. So if you just work a desk job, you drive to work the same way every day, you go to the grocery store once a week, you go to the gym every night after work, after a few weeks or months of that, your brain doesn't remember every single Tuesday because it doesn't need to, because today's Tuesday is the same as last week's is the same as the 10 that came before it. So then people say, oh, I feel like time's going really fast because the years just roll by and your brain isn't even bothering to remember all of it. Whereas when you live like this crazy dynamic life, every single day is so different and so confronting. I can remember like every minute of every day that I was in the Congo because it was so vivid and so eye-opening and it's unlike any other memory I have in my brain. So for me, I felt like time went slower in Africa than it had, you know, the six months in Africa felt longer than the preceding six years sitting at a desk. And, and I think the dynamicness, I don't know there's a better word than that, of your life defines how fast time passes. That's, a, that's amazing. Yeah, I could definitely see that. If every um, day is the same, your brain doesn't really bother, you, your memories don't clearly record them. And then so after years of that, you don't actually have many memories. You might remember a birthday or a funeral or like sort of tentpole events, but in the whole, you don't remember the whole 365 days of that year. But if every single day, like someone dropped you in the Arctic, then they dropped you in the desert, then they, then you saw a bear, then you saw an elephant, like every of those 365 days, you would remember all of them clearly. And you'd be like, wow, that was a big year. Like a lot happened this year. Wow. Yeah. That is as, uh, illuminating as it is slightly depressing. No, I, I think that that is it's worthwhile to point that out though. Cause it's, I think it's very true. Um, you know, if you live a more, I mean, you end up living a more fulfilling life because you are experiencing more and you're, you're, you're understanding more. And the, the thing about time there is really interesting too. It makes me think of, uh, Okay, I gotta send you this like clip. There's like a, a point in this Mike. I like Mike Tyson. So anytime he's on like certain things, I'll like watch it. So he he was on uh, Joe Rogan once. Uh, I think it's the time he was on most recently. Um, but he I didn't know this, but like Joe just like I was like, oh, you used to like, you know, study conquerors. Like, what do you know about conquerors? And then he just like corrects Rogan about a, about a couple things. Then he just kind of goes off about uh, um, the art of immortality which is, which definitely influenced some of my thought of that, uh, artists, uh, kind of thing I was telling you before. Um, but he starts talking about, uh, like a short life of, uh, brilliance versus a long life of obscurity. And he talks about it with Alexander the great and like, you know, like I, I, I study a lot of the ancient world, like I said, so like, you can't, like, there's certain things that you like, you start looking into and you can't not 
end up either by just tangential knowledge or like at some point have to dive into. And if you're studying like ancient, the classics, like Roman, Greek world, Byzant- Byzantine world, even, and I would even say after that, all the way through Napoleon, you have to study Alexander the Great because he just kind of set, he, he, he was the model that so many people started to kind of compare themselves to their, the yardstick. Um, and he just did so much in such a short period of time. But like in the way that you're describing to me now, like it, his experience probably had to be so vivid because of it, because of just, and, and not even just him, like, you know, he's a very obscure reference, but anytime that you challenge yourself to be just constantly approaching new things, constantly immersing yourself <clears throat> in new areas and challenging yourself um, and then having the discipline to do that, I think you can live a life of, of more fulfillment and, and once again, play with the amount of time you're given here on, you know, in this consciousness a bit more. Yeah. And I, I'm always a little bit careful to shy away. I don't want to say that life is more fulfilling or that it's better or any kind of like subjective measurement of it. It's just different. It's just a choice. It's there are pros and cons to both. They're like, neither one is objectively better than the other. I don't think it's yeah. And, but, but I think the important part is to realize that it, is a choice and that yeah we are artists of our own time and every day that passes is a is a day less that we have to create whatever it is we want to create and it's really easy to lose sight of that if every day is more or less the same yep yeah that's really interesting um it's it's refreshing to hear you have this type of experience and really try to go out there and do this because it's something I think is increasingly I mean even the amount of people that are doing this in like a van life kind of way that's very popular right now I feel like it it's it's still very like glit and glisten and it's not quite as honest as you're preparing it or talking about it um and also um you know it, it's still that, that's still a connection to the outside world, right? There's a lot of, and I'm not, I'm not knocking it in the way that you want. You kind of like uh, said that as a, a blanket, a safe harbor statement. Like I'm not knocking people who have like an Instagram that they're making great money off of that or anything. Like no, that is, you know, great that you're you're finding a way in this world, but it's different, right? It, it's a different type of experience than really detaching from that because detaching from that, you start kind of getting worn into an ancestral type of environment. And then all of these other kind of wacky things started to emerge. And it's only wacky because you're so used to a certain status quo, right? Like this is actually reality. This is one way of viewing reality, you know, of, of basing it off of where we are on this spaceship that's spinning around this, you know, nuclear reactor, um, you know, and trying to approach it in a much more, um, it, you know, I, I wanted to say rooted, but that almost sounds like it's once again, like uh, in the way brave was kind of connoting a, uh, narrative almost mm. like it's connoting that you know the other way is is unrooted or something like that and i don't mean to to do that either because i think all walks of life are, are ways in which you can find transcend yourself and to try to find some type of happiness um but it, it's refreshing to hear like both the links you go to 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 get so detached from the world but the wisdom that you get from it oh i don't know if it's wisdom yet jr maybe maybe when i'm 85 i'll have some wisdom <laughs> <laughs> you know, until the, then i'll just i'll just keep fumbling along and, and see what comes that as an answer to someone saying wise proves that you have wisdom more than saying oh thank you 
Well, is there anything else that you would like to add? It's been an absolute delight talking to you. Yeah, oh, JR, this has been incredible. Uh, I've got a lot to think about now. Thanks. Um, yeah, yeah, really great talking to you. Yeah, you too. Thank you. I got a lot to think about too. Yeah. <laughs>